welcome once again. My name is Paul Gilbert. I'm the CEO of Quanza, and uh, I'm uh, about to have another conversation in a Quanza cafe with a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Shirin Tekine. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join me, Shirin, and, and I, I know we're going to have a wonderful conversation. Um, but first of all, I just want to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Uh, Shirin is the uh, currently the chair of the Global Engineering Deans Council and has been since 2019. Uh, and she most recently served as the American Sharjah, American University of Sharjah Dean at the College of Engineering. And I believe uh, you have nine patents to your name, along with numerous publications. And before joining academia, uh, you worked at the Bell Labs, Lucent Technologies, and at Nortel. So bringing to the academic world a lot of practical, you know, real-life engineering experience. And I remember listening to, a, a, or I think it was a conversation you had with someone that I was kind of almost a party to, you were trying to tell the story years ago when you were, I'm not sure whether you were in, in research or whether you were at Nortel and you were telling everybody, imagine one day you'll be able to go to a city and you won't need a map. You'll be able to have you know, some electronic device showing you where you were. And everyone in the room looked at you as if you had three heads. <laughs> and, 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 and look where we are today. I mean, without our phones and devices. And so, so a lot of the work that you did, a lot of the research you did, I'm not sure if it was 10 or 15. I don't want to age you, but 10 or 15 years ago, <laughs> Um, that's come to, to play and, and works with us every day. So for that, in, in and of itself, I thank you. But uh, once again, thank you for joining me. And, and, and maybe to start with, what, what I always find interesting in talking to, to leaders is, is to just get a sense of what inspired you in, your, in the first place to, to, to go into engineering. Thanks so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel privileged to do one of these webinars with you. Um, and uh, to, to the global audience, what a lovely message to carry uh, as the uh, headline here. Uh, if you don't discourage your children from being an engineer, they are likely to become one. So it's uh, <laughs> all the uh, problems in the world that uh, children see, especially these days. Uh, they're engineering problems, and I'm not saying this because I have a hammer and everything looks like a nail to me, but when you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, if not wholly, in great part, they're engineering problems. Uh, of course, when I was a kid, maybe uh, the planetary emergency that we're in, of course, existed, but maybe it wouldn't reflect on a child, but I was lucky that I wasn't discouraged from being inquisitive and wanting to build things and making an impact. And um, when I uh, said I wanted to be the science officer on a spaceship, I had the kind of parents that did not say there are no spaceships and you can't get on one. They said, great, well, then you should be one. And that was the environment I was in. Uh, so it wasn't something that motivated me towards engineering or encouragement as much as the lack of discouragement that unfortunately uh, is the reason why we don't have as many engineers as we should today. Well, I think and that there is of, some kind of genetic mutation, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that kind of leads to, I mean, a little bit into one of the conversations that we've had many times, and that is uh, the notion of diversity in engineering, you know, of, of all kinds, whether it's, you know, gender, ethnicity, and so on. And you're particularly vocal about women in engineering. I, I would love to hear your thoughts about what you do and, and the challenges you think that, that we were faced with today? Um, 
Thank you, Paul. Um, for years and years, we've been working on uh, increasing diversity in engineering, and we have tried all the wrong approaches. I'm guilty for some, uh, which is why we should uh, work harder on um, generalizing our efforts, both globally and in terms of the modalities of activities. This is not about encouraging girls to go into STEM fields. Uh, it's not about uh, pushing them. Uh, it's about pulling them in, for which we need to gender neutralize the professional identity of engineering. As long as it's observed as, perceived as a masculine field, we will not succeed in the kind of diversity we need in engineering. We need everybody. Uh, as mentioned, I keep going back to uh, making the world sustainable, healthy, um, safe, uh, and joyful, which are the four pillars of the vision of engineering as stated by the US National Academy of Engineering. Um, we, we need everybody's creativity, innovations, uh, and uh, energy. Uh, but the gendered nature of the professional identity of engineering causes uh, girls in those countries where the gender equality index is high, paradoxically, to not want to go into these hard masculine fields. And girls in those countries, such as the Middle East, uh, the, the MENA region uh, in particular, where the gender equality index is low, um, the percentage of girls that go into STEM fields at college level is higher than, say, Northern Europe, because they, the, the select few self-confident girls now want to go into a masculine field oh, uh, so that they will be more respected because masculine things are more respectable but then they drop out. There's the leaky pipeline model of diversity in engineering. So now we have more dropouts from the workplace because there's no pull. Uh, they've been pushed uh, by their teachers, by their parents to, to do something uh, difficult and therefore more respectable. And maybe, just maybe, they'll become more independent, but most of them drop out because the professional identity of engineering and the community is so um, gendered, is so, so masculine. So you've gone through this yourself. I mean, you, you you graduated. I mean, you went through undergraduate. You came to North America. You did your postgraduate studies. Then you worked for a few companies. What are the kind of things that cause? Do you think cause women to to drop out in in, in terms of uh, the leaky pipeline, as you call it? Well, um, the the statistics are there. Uh, the uh, family thing and the childcare thing counterintuitively rank at about eighth or ninth uh, when you rank the reasons why women drop out of the engineering workforce. The first seven or eight reasons are uh, discrimination, uh, being uh, outcast in the workplace, uh, having to deal with uh, lower expectations, uh, trivialization of their efforts, not getting the credit they deserve, and so on and so forth. Uh, so again, it's not childcare, it's not family. Th that seems to be the go-to excuse for the right. uh, low percentage of women in the workforce. That is statistically not the case. 
it's it's really more about the environment that they're in and the way that they are treated or the way the expectations and i know that and i mean you, you use some interesting techniques i i think uh when when young, young women have come to you to to to, to present either theses or or their their projects you know and they they use it, it's it's subtle but there's words that they use which you try to guide them towards a more positive approach to their absolutely their the word try was forbidden in uh, <laughs> all of my students projects and uh drafts uh the t word was a no-no uh, you don't try you do uh here is a typical uh abstract when uh especially women in engineering start to write in this piece of work, to the best of our knowledge, for the first time, we try to give a brief overview of some of the approaches. No, 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 no. I tell them, you, not to the best of your knowledge, this is the first one. It's so easy to do a complete literature survey. Don't come to me with it before you've done that and say, this is the first time we're doing this. Don't try, do. It's not a brief summary, it's a comprehensive survey. And it's not <laughs> some of the important things. This includes all of the important things. They're not confident enough. And it sort of seeps through the vocabulary. And uh, it feeds into the already existing low expectations. And it's a, uh, it's a vicious cycle. And some of the um, gender action plans put in place with the best of intentions make things worse. If we have time for uh, about 60 seconds, I'd like to give this Please. wonderful example of uh, Airbus and MIT uh, research. They had about 650-ish, I don't know the exact number, data points. So it's statistically respectable research, empirical research, where they decided in order to have about 30% of their innovation team, the R&D engineering team, um, female, uh, they wanted to have one out of the four candidates that was already in their recruiting uh, processes that they needed four candidates for each position. At least one should be a woman. So you think of those cases where they had one woman out of the four candidates, uh, they would have a 25% probability of hiring that woman, right? No, right. statistically it's zero. <clears throat> those yeah. cases resulted in not hiring that woman because the mindset was this is the diversity candidate that we just have to interview because it's the rule. When you have two women out of the four, the percentage was 50% because that mindset evaporated. The so two the women that they were interviewing. <laughs> so the mindset is in, in kind of in, in, in any, any setting where you want to bring people into engineering, whether it's academic or whether industrial, you really need to kind of set the goals and, and bring in a bigger pool, like a larger pool of women, so that you're not putting them in that kind of token position. Exactly, exactly. In, interesting, and it's fascinating that it's statistically proven by you know uh, Airbus and, and MIT. So, so actually, if you, if you, it, what, one of the things that I know uh, you're very keen on is uh, engineering education reform, modifying the curriculum or the approach to teaching. And this conversation kind of leads nicely into the notion of blended learning. So from, from my vantage point and for the audience, could you maybe describe what, what you see as blended learning and what, what do you think the benefits are for this generation and generations in the future? Absolutely. The, the key 
word there is this generation because our students are now um, in engineering colleges and schools, uh, they're generation Z, the first truly global generation. Uh, they were born into technology, they have not seen the world without the internet, um, and they've also witnessed a lot of um, terrorism and uh, global uh, problems. Uh, so they're truly global and interconnected. They share a global culture. They all know the emojis that, uh, <laughs> the, the, how should I say, the more senior ones of us have come to learn. They, they, they've <laughs> been that as the uh, vocabulary that they've seen. Um, and then in a couple of years, we're going to get the alphas, generation alpha, who are now preteens to teenagers already. They're, everything Generation Z is in terms of being global and on top of it uh, they're activists and they're angry and they're anxious so we need to get all that energy into engineering they're they're uh, very sensible they're one of their slogans is listen to the science when it comes to mm -hmm. talking to politicians and decision makers about the climate uh, the crisis that they feel ever so strongly about, it's their future. Um, so they're extremely respectful of science and technology, but you simply can't sit them in a classroom, lecture them on differential uh, equations and say, trust me, in two years time when you take this other theoretical course in your field, whichever program you're uh, registered for, and by that time, this kid who's been building drones since they were 12 has lost all motivation in engineering. Uh, so blended learning is the case where students pull information as opposed to faculty uh, pushing information on them. Unfortunately, most faculty are in their comfort zone when they're the sage on stage. That's the Exactly. It's uh, but unfortunately, it's becoming the dinosaur really fast. If it hasn't already, students cannot be told, "Trust us, this is going to be useful to you." When the faculty themselves haven't used the information to build anything, but they've been teaching the same thing over and over again. That era is closed and done with. Uh, students need to pull the information they need to build the things they uh, hope will be solutions to problems. So undergraduate students should be involved in research and development, and they will pull the information from math to physics to whatever discipline of engineering they need from materials and uh, robotics, um, and build things, or at least see the path to building things, uh, because especially Generation Alpha, is very purpose-oriented uh, and it's a wonderful thing their anger and anxiety and all that energy can be channelized into generating solutions this is what they want so i mean one of one of the things that the pandemic has, has done for certainly for myself it's made the global world come together kind of uh, really interestingly we no, no longer do you have to travel to do a presentation to have a meeting you can have a meeting just like we're having today. I mean, I'm popping to Istanbul today, and I think this afternoon I'll be somewhere in the United States and, and, and maybe later in the day in China. Uh, 
Are you able to use that with your students as well? Have you been able to think through some of those international oriented uh, kind of Absolutely. approaches? Um, one thing we did as um, the Global Engineering Deans Council uh, in response to uh, the pandemic was to launch the virtual internship program. Uh, when it became clear that the pandemic was here to stay past the spring break, we rolled up our sleeves and said our students need internships and they need right. internships for credit and they need these credits for graduation and we will not delay our students' graduations or stop their uh, clock to graduation because of the pandemic. Well, how do we do that? Things have to be virtualized. A lot of the uh, companies that offered uh, internships were too busy trying to figure out their own work from home schemes. So internships were not terribly high on their radar, most of them anyway. Uh, so we did this for students by university virtual internship program and some of our corporate members did pitch in with uh, virtual internship opportunities that we uh, launched the platform for uh, advertising globally. And so without prohibitive airfare, without the need for obtaining visas, which might take longer than the internship mm -hmm. itself for some of the students elsewhere on earth, uh, we were able to have um, 36,000 students were interested. Uh, they, they, we know that's the uh, wow. number of clicks we got on the website. Uh, the actual internships to be completed will be uh, counted towards the end of the year. That's in the hundreds, uh, but we will continue. And also now we started to pull the Southern Hemisphere together because we keep referring to the summer internships. And most of us, I'm guilty for this, refer to the months of June, July, August, whereas um, on the GDC Executive uh, Committee, I have excellent colleagues from Monash University in Australia, University of Pretoria in South Africa, and I'm sure I'm missing some others from the Southern Hemisphere, and to them, uh, it's the uh, other way around. Winter, yeah, yeah. Uh, so now we're able to activate twice a year uh, summer internships. Oh, so you had a, you had a kind of a second one. You had the summer that we would call a summer in in, in our world, and then and then for the other parts of the world they had a, a second wave. That that that's fascinating. But you you said uh, thirty six thousand, and 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 I I know we were we were fortunate. We worked with Krishna, you know, our good friend Krishna in India, and I managed to have I think about twenty interns that we worked with through universities in India. Um, compared to what we'd normally be able to do, that was probably you know, 10 times as many as we normally be able to do. So do you think that the uh, the lessons that we've learned in terms of internships is one, the other one is the blended learning approach using the virtualized environment, you know, uh, having access to labs, obviously from my perspective, that's something that which we were very conscious of. Um, do you see a fundamental shift? Do you see like a big shift now that, the, that when the pandemic's over to, to a newer modern way of teaching? Um, or do you think we, the pendulum will swim right back? Absolutely. I think we should stop thinking of virtualization of experiential learning as a means to simply mimic what's available face to face, because that's a losing battle. You're setting the bar too low. Uh, I think going into the virtual realm has its own uh, advantages over face to face uh, education. 
I'm the first to say engineering education is in large part experiential and you can't virtualize everything. There are some labs in uh, chemical engineering or civil engineering that students simply have to be physically present at. But uh, again, there are so many things we can do with virtualized labs uh, that we can't do in real labs, such as the age-old problem we've been having with students developing intuition, looking at theoretical foundations and understanding the laws of their discipline that they govern, uh, now you're able to, first of all, uh, have a virtual environment where you have uh, an immersive, interactive, maybe uh, augmented reality type or virtual reality supported environment uh, where you're mimicking the real lab but also you're able to fly the mathematical foundations governing what they're doing right there and then in front of their eyes so that they see the direct relationship. Uh, here's something none of us were able to do uh, from the classroom to the lab. And we've been trying to match these in our students' minds. Some do, some don't. Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, from, from my vantage point as well, and I know you've had obviously many conversations with industry you come from industry yourself and that's the modern way of engineering i mean the modern way of engineering is to talk about using digital twins so that you can understand and develop prototypes faster you can actually do a lot of theoretical discovery and then you've got to figure out what's the difference what's the five or ten or fifteen percent difference between the digital world and the thing that you want to actually develop do you see this as something which you universities can build on in terms of attracting students and, and, and building their portfolio of capabilities when they move on to, to, to try and get a job when they graduate. Absolutely. And again, industry has been the locomotive of this. Uh, imagine when we're uh, educating pilots or astronauts, we've been using simulators, immersive environments, because right. the real lab would be ever so expensive. Uh, so it's not a difficult mind shift, uh, it's sort of the comfort zone that we have to push people out of. And again, uh, industry simply cares about uh, the employability of graduates. Uh, so the collaboration between universities and industry um, on curriculum will be extremely useful there. And again, uh, hopefully when this pandemic is over and done with, we will have these virtual tools as valuable tools and universities have to reinvent themselves. This is an opportunity. They have to reinvent themselves in a hurry with a synchronous and synchronous uh, education mode. Uh, and global student bodies, 80% of, of the global engineering uh, student body are studying uh, in other countries, not in their native countries. So it's an extremely global student body. And to serve that student body, delivery online or virtualized delivery is extremely powerful and useful. So going back to what you said really earlier on is your, your notion or your desire to have students get involved in kind of research-based kind of studying from, from, from day one. How do, you imp how do you go about implementing that? Have you seen any good examples of where people are able to bring students in and, and year one 
traditionally it's the you know, sit in a lecture hall, listen to concepts and theories go flying by your head. Other universities uh, are beginning to try and put things in their first year. What are the kinds of things that you've seen or, or, or attempted yourself? Well, um, you know how universities have this freshman foundation building year to bring everyone uh, on the same page and so on. And then there's also this, well, engineering students should go take some humanities classes. They're too dry otherwise and so on. All right, that's great. Um, no, no objections there, but everyone on a university campus, whether they're engineering students or not, should take some engineering courses also. Everyone should understand uh, coding, computational thinking, uh, complexity, uh, whether as advanced as the human brain or the social network that they use every day. They should have some notion of complexity. Uh, so that engineering is not this insular, uh, difficult thing that these students in that ugly building in the corner do when the rest of the university <laughs> is uh, happily uh, having their engineering uh, friends uh, code their, program their uh, smart homes and whatever. Uh, the whole society needs to have a notion of computational thinking and complexity and some basic engineering concepts. So uh, the bringing everyone to the same level the first year should really prompt uh, teamwork uh, towards projects that students have cared about uh, since they were preteens. Uh, so more and more maybe extracurricular activities honor societies on campuses, engineering clubs, should be more inclusive and multidisciplinary uh, so that engineering solutions, generating engineering solutions and co-innovating is fun and it's part of the engineering culture. Yeah, it's, it's something which, which I've, I've talked a lot about when I, when I present to students in engineering. I, I often talk about you know, career progressions that they are thinking of. And, and it goes from you're going to be an engineer and you're going to spend your career as a design engineer and other people branch off. You might go into business, you might go into law, you might go into politics. And one of my biggest fears right now is, is, is the level of engineering understanding in, in the political spectrum, right? And, and if you could get people to understand that they should have a voice or, or the scientific and engineering community should have a voice and encourage that. So th those, I agree with you, bringing a breadth of experiences into, into an undergraduate life, you know, from day one is really, really interesting. I'm going to ask a bit of a controversial question because I've, this has come up a number of times. Um, we have in engineering silos, disciplines, we have mechanical, we have electrical, computer science, uh, chemical, and so on. What's your take on that? Do you think that, that that model is still something that's relevant today? Well, it makes coding the courses easier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we need to go into more modular uh, curricula where uh, students can grocery shop and uh, put the number of credits they need for accreditation and graduation in their baskets, but uh, consciously choose the skills and um, knowledge that they need to become what they want to become. 
this is easier said than done, even when you um, reinvent your curriculum as such. Faculty will ask you, now I'm talking as the dean, they'll ask you, so how are we going to do the assessment? How do we grade these students? So when everything else is so progressive, you still have uh, two midterms and a final, and the final has 40% weight, blah, 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 blah. The students will come to you and say, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> Whose answer for my students now is always yes. And then, will you ask the same questions you did last semester because somebody got hold of the archive? I say, yes, I'll ask exactly the same questions. Did not change them a bit. I changed the answers. So <laughs> you have to do something new. Uh, there's a lot to be done. And that's why global platforms uh, such as this is extremely important because we as engineering faculty should and administrators should think about uh, how to uh, evaluate and assess teamwork and uh, project-based learning uh, we do not know yet. We're, we're yeah, still I mean, you, you, yeah, you bring on the discussion of assessment. I think that's incredibly important. And I certainly know that when, when, when I'm hiring people, um, I take it for granted that they have the technical skills based on the university they've gone to or based on the courses that they've done. And I'm much more interested in their personality, the characteristics they bring to the company in terms of teamwork. And, and, and I, I know it's difficult, but from, from an administrative perspective to try and create the programs that are going to be attracted to industry at the same time create students who are going to be lifelong learners and can be able to adapt and be able to think. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think have to change, um, but I'm an optimist. I mean, you and I, we've been to multiple conferences where we see leaders in the field. How do you feel just in general terms, in terms of the direction that universities are going right now? Are we going, are they moving fast enough? Do you think? Um, no but we're speeding up. Uh, so I'm happy with the acceleration. Not fast enough, but speeding up because the, the necessity is uh, palpable. Uh, those universities who are capable of doing this are way ahead of the curve. Uh, even the traditional ranking systems that are so coveted by universities are changing. Uh, the United Nations has a UN, uh, UN academic impact, which is uh, prestigious to be a member of. Times higher education uh, ranking systems have now evolved uh, to accommodate impact ranking, which directly measures universities' impact towards sustainable development goals. Um, I really hope these, uh, and of course, accreditation uh, such as ABET or ABET equivalents under the Washington Accord are accommodating more and more project-based uh, experiential learning for engineering students. So all of these are making me very hopeful, but what I'm most hopeful about is student engagement and leadership. Mm -hmm. Students know what they want. They're increasingly purpose-oriented. So if uh, we have college and school administrators who are uh, flexible enough to accommodate, to effectively and productively channelize students' uh, leadership, they'll be the winners. Because students really want to learn. They are not the um, work-averse, uh, grade-greedy uh, students of 
the, the 20th century, uh, that that model uh, was maybe true to a uh, higher percentage, but right now that's a very low percentage, I'm very proud to say. Students want to make a difference, they chose engineering schools uh, to not get good grades and graduate, but to uh, make a difference, and that kind of motivation needs to be channelized well. So, you know, one, one of the things which I'm, I'm really happy about in this series that I'm doing meeting leaders like yourself is, is just, you know, the conversations we might have with two or 300 people at a GEDC conference, I'm hopefully getting out to many more thousands of people that can have this conversation. So, so that, theme, that, that theme has come out loud and clear to me and that's advice. I think you're giving the advice for administrators to listen to students. The student voice is something which is really powerful. Absolutely. And, and of course, it's not just the small uh, schools, uh, many little engineering clubs, they might be small in numbers of students, but we have global uh, engineering student organizations such as uh, SPEED, the uh, Student Platform mm -hmm. for Engineering Education Development, BEST, the Board of European uh, Students to Technology, which is no longer European, it's actually uh, quite global. Uh, please hook in your student organizations to these global organizations. Their impact is amazing and uh, students are leaders when it comes to making uh, productive use of uh, social media and holding events and conferences. And so you, you also, I'm, I mean, this goes without saying, you're encouraging students to join those groups as well and become more vocal in, in, in what they can do in the future. You know, Sharon, this, this conversation has already gone so fast i can't believe the time already i really want to thank you for the work that you do um i know you've been a, a huge kind of uh, guiding spirit for, for so many people and i know you, you always say this to me you take the baton from somebody else and you pass it on and you're, you're building on the shoulders of giants but uh, uh, given your background uh, and what you've done and taken to the uh, the global world thank you very much indeed and on a personal thank note the fact that i can go to all these countries around the world pull out my phone and I know where I am, and if I want to go to A from A to B, I can, I, I always tell my, my kids now, I, I, I know somebody that was involved in the technology that made that happen, so thanks for that as well. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul.